Hi, you are now listening to a sermon from Harvest Community Church in Hoffman Estates, Illinois. Today you will hear a sermon from Pastor Dave Lee, so without further ado, here he is. Morning. We decided to kick off our new year um, with a short series called Launch. And that's because there seems to be a sense that for many at Harvest, um, there's a yearning to break free from the lethargy, the uh, apathy that so often settles over us spiritually. Some of us, it's not just our spiritual life, but all of life feels like it's just stuck on a loop. Tiresome. The same old burdens, the same old dramas, over and over. And we're ready in our hearts to break free from that. We want to feel like we're coming to life again. We want to feel like our faith is real. We want to feel like our relationships are life-giving. And so there's this yearning for renewal and the metaphor, the imagery of a rocket launching into space. I think it's a really good image to capture the way a lot of us feel in our hearts. We yearn for that. We wish we, our spirits, were that rocket breaking free of Earth's gravity. And in order to help us get a start on the year properly, I wanted to introduce three very important spiritual principles that will help us stay on track as we go. And we're building off of that imagery of a rocket launching. Last week, we looked at how um, a constant, um, frequent interaction with, engagement with God's Holy Spirit, interacting with him as though he were a real person present, active in our lives, asking him to interact with us, tell us what he thinks, what he feels, seeking guidance from him, that is parallel to mission control. And though only a few astronauts go into space physically, a small army of people at mission control make sure that that rocket stays on course. And that's very much the role that God plays, is that as we connect with him regularly, he keeps us on course. And if we disconnect from him, we find ourselves free-floating, lost, often wandering in circles. This Sunday, I'm going to look at a second principle, which is fueled by the word. And obviously, when you look at a picture like this, fuel is very much a part of the equation of launching anything out of gravitational pull into orbit. The text this morning comes from Deuteronomy 8, 1 to 3, and we'll start there, and then we'll dive into some other scriptures as well. This works better if I turn it on. Okay, here we go. Here's what it says. Be careful to follow every command I am giving you today so that you may live and increase and may enter and possess the land the Lord promised on oath to your ancestors. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way in the wilderness these 40 years to humble and test you in order to know what was in your heart, whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger, and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known, to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. 
You know, there are two realities in which every one of us lives our whole lives. You may not always be mindful of or aware of both of these realities, but you are squarely rooted in both of them at all times. They've been referred to by different names, but for our purposes, we'll refer to one as the natural and the other as the spiritual. The natural reality is that reality which we are most often aware of. It's where we dwell bodily. It's the reality we apprehend with our five senses. And that's the world that is the entire reality for a great many people. For a lot of people, they cannot fathom anything could be real which cannot be proven logically or apprehended by one of the five senses. That if I have to conjure it, imagine it, believe it, it just isn't real. It is something I have manufactured. And I I can see the logic and the sense of that way of approaching life. But if you've been alive and paying attention at all, you know that there is more to this existence, this life, than what is sensual, what is available to us through our five senses. We have a sense from the, from the very beginning that there is more to this than just what I see and hear and taste, touch, feel. When you think about it, in which reality do you live most of your conscious life? Which reality do you travel through when you wake up in the morning until when you go to bed at night? Which one defines your sense of well-being, your emotional state, how you interpret the things that happen during the day? How do you, which grid do you wear to figure out what does this mean, which just happened to me today? In Deuteronomy 8, which we just read, Moses is basically giving um, one, of the, one of the three farewell sermons with which he was closing out his earthly ministry. He had led the people well. He had led them out of a very significant thing. And God made it clear to him his ministry was going to be over soon. So he was basically telling Israel, here's really what's on my heart as I hand you off to your future and to the next leader. And he's speaking to Israel at the tail end of their wandering through the wilderness after they had fled from Egypt and from slavery. They'd been wandering around in circles in an area not much bigger than Metro Chicagoland for 38 years. Think about that. Several million people lost in an area roughly the size of Chicagoland for almost 40 years. And they were sick of it. They were more than ready to find their promised land and settle down. How many of you travel a lot for work? Just raise your hand if you travel like more than 10% of the year. Keep your hands up. How about 25% of the year? If you travel a lot for work, keep your hands raised if you still love it. You love hotel rooms, you love airplanes, you love the TSA, love living out of a suitcase. When you're living life on the road, it gets tiresome really fast. And the Israelites were really ready to be done with all of this temporariness, this makeshiftness, this good enoughness. They were ready. To go home. And the hardness, the difficulty of their present surroundings, their situation in the natural, was sucking the life out of them, and they were giving in to grumbling and doubt and despair. 
In fact, the very God who had delivered them from slavery was now being blamed for their hunger and their discomfort. They even said things like, did you free us from slavery just to kill us out here in the desert? What was going on was that the the struggle they were experiencing in the natural was eclipsing their view and their memory of what God was doing in the spiritual. Does that make sense to you? So there are two stories, two realities in which we live, and very often this happens to us. What's happening in the natural when it gets really rough starts to cloud our vision of what has been happening and is still happening in the spiritual. And we will start with one of those two realities to interpret the other one. What God teaches us over and over again is you begin in the spiritual and try to make sense of what's happening in the natural. But what is more common for us is to begin in the natural and try to interpret what God is like in the spiritual. If this is happening to me now, then God must be like this. Rather than saying God is like this, how do I understand this which is happening to me now? The sequence of that matters supremely. And for the Israelites, just like for many of us, what was happening in the natural was creating a lot of tension in the way that they interacted with what was happening in the spiritual. They were forgetting the amazing story that they had lived through in their own lifetimes. Now, I've never been a slave, but I've read quite a bit on the subject. That doesn't make me an expert. It certainly doesn't help me understand emotionally. But I know that slavery is very dehumanizing. It creates hopelessness. It it tells you no matter what you do, you cannot change your destiny. And when you are a slave, you are a slave because you have no power to free yourself. And it was in that context where generations, my father was a slave, and his father before him was a slave, and his father before him, for as many generations as we can remember, we've been slaves to these other people, and there is no relief in sight for us. It's just going to be like this for all time. And in that hopelessness and into that despair and powerlessness, God had broken through and he had rescued them. He had delivered them out of that and he hadn't done it in some subtle way. There were some incredible demonstrations of supernatural power. Do you remember something called the 10 plagues? He left no doubt in anyone's mind that Israel had not freed themselves, but God had stepped into their human story and set them free. And he had not just set them free, He had set them free to himself. He was leading them to a land which he had promised on oath to their ancestors. And in that land, his intention was to rule over them and protect them as their true king. It's a beautiful story. It was the reality of their spiritual story. And it was an amazing story, but they were forgetting. Because even though this is the greater story of their life, the immediate present struggle blinded them to everything. It's like being on a plane to the Maldives and grumbling the whole flight because there's a baby crying in the seat in front of you. Forgetting what you're on the way to experience because in this moment, there's something hard going on in our vicinity. There's always going to be a tension in our lives between the natural and the spiritual. Do you see that? 
And right now in your life, if there is any sense of tension at all, I promise you, you can locate the heart of that tension in this ongoing everyday tension that there is the spiritual and the natural, and those two things are pulling at each other, and you're caught in the middle. And the decision that God is calling you to make every day is which one of those realities will define the other? Which language will you use to interpret the other? What is your starting point and your interpretive grid to make sense of this thing that we call life? Israel, we're not the only ones who felt that tension. We feel it every day. And here's the truth. Even though the spiritual is so powerful and profound, the natural has an amazing pull on the human spirit. The world around us that we can see and touch and feel and hear, taste, that world calls out to us all the time. It's noisy. It refuses to be ignored. Our own internal voice also joins the chorus. And you know this is true. It's so hard to unroot yourself from the reality of the natural. Food is one of the, uh, the images used in this text, and it's one of the most keen reminders how rooted we are to the natural, isn't it? How long can you go during the day before that sense of yearning for food begins to exert itself on your consciousness. How many of you will basically commit criminal activity if you don't get food in your belly within the first hour of being conscious? Yeah, I know some of you hangry. Hangry as anything. There are some of us who, from the very first moments of wakefulness, our thought is, man, it's been like eight hours since I ate. That's how rooted we are to the natural. It will not be pushed aside. It invades our consciousness. It imposes itself on us all the time. And that's the nature of the natural. It screams, it shouts, it cajoles, it shakes. But the spiritual sort of sits there and goes, I'm right here. It's, it's, I'm affecting you. But you've got to look for me. We live in the tension of these two realities, but they behave very differently towards us. They both affect us, but they don't both shout for our attention. What Moses says is, Israel, you're grumbling today. You're spiraling into rebellion against God because you are so mindful of the natural. And you've forgotten what's going on in the spiritual. And if you want to win this fight, if you want to overcome this crisis in your faith, If you want to flourish in the spiritual, then the same way that you have to eat food in the natural to thrive, you have to eat spiritual food to thrive spiritually. And what Moses says, if you look at it, is spiritual food is not just the parts of God's word we appreciate and like. It's every word that comes from the mouth of God. Every word. One of the reasons we try not to do too many topical sermons at Harvest, but we preach through books of the Bible, is because if we only pick and choose the highlight reel, we might get a very distorted picture of what God is actually saying. We like the discipline of preaching through whole books of the Bible because it forces us to confront some of the passages we wish we could just sort of go, that's not in there, just, just move along, nothing to see here. They're hard verses. They're confusing verses. They're things that God says which we wish we didn't have to repeat but are nonetheless a part of what God tells us. 
And what he says is the spiritual food we need is not just the parts that we like about who God reveals himself to be, but the full story of who God is and what he has said. Every word that comes from his mouth. Now here, here's how expansive that is. That could include prophetic words spoken to us by someone who is filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking to us on God's behalf. We've got to be careful with that, but I believe there's still a validity to that sort of communication from God that he speaks to us prophetically through others. Sometimes it's that still small voice of certainty and conviction as he stirs our own hearts. If you're attentive, if you listen, often God does reach out and communicate with us through our own internal voice. In fact, God himself portrayed his own speaking style as a still small voice, a gentle whisper. So those are legitimate ways in which every word which comes from the mouth of God is meant for our spiritual nourishment. But we cannot deny that the primary, clearest, most important way that God reveals himself to us, the the most primary way that he communicates with us is through scripture. Moses says that if you want to flourish in the spiritual realm, you must not just eat bread, but you must eat spiritual food. And if you don't eat spiritual food, which is the word of God, every word from God's mouth, you will begin to wither and fade in exactly the same way you would experience in the natural if you just stopped eating. I've been to churches where there are a number of people who have done a 40-day fast. That seems like science fiction to me. I know it's possible there's a side of me, a weird side that yearns to try it. And there's another bigger side of me that says, are you crazy? But it's doable. And I know that when you deny yourself food for that long, it messes with some fundamental functions in your natural reality. But I have to believe that a lot of the spiritual malaise and weakness we see all around us today is not because the world is harder than it used to be. It's not because the church is weaker than it used to be. It's simply this. I believe there is an epidemic of spiritual malnutrition. You know, sometimes you see these these, um, very thin, thin people who, for issues of body image, deny themselves food but they, comp- they complain perpetually, I'm so tired. And you just want to say to them, you know what you should do? Eat something. If you don't eat, you're going to feel like that all the time. We were meant to consume in order to gain fuel. And if you don't eat the word of God, what you're going to experience are in the spiritual realm the exact parallels that you would experience in the natural realm of malnutrition. Your body expends fuel every day just to sit. Do you realize that just laying on a couch, you're burning calories? Not a lot. Don't try that as a new diet program or exercise regimen, but just living, existing, you burn calories. You consume fuel. And the more you try to move forward, the more active you become, you burn even more fuel. And if you don't replenish that fuel, you experience disease, malaise. Symptoms start to pop up. I'm not a doctor or a nutritionist. I don't know what those symptoms are. But I got to imagine they look in the physical realm very much like many people's souls look in the spiritual realm. Just apathetic, passive, unenergetic, 
irritable, confused. You know, we live in a culture that is so well-resourced that for us, food is often regarded or received more as a source of pleasure than nourishment. Wouldn't you agree? We have so much to eat that we're like, I'm not going to eat that because it doesn't taste good. I'll wait till something yummier comes along. That's how much food we have is that we could choose at times to not eat until something yummier comes along. That's the attitude relationship we have with food in the United States. So you can imagine that probably some of that attitude is going to filter down into the way that we interact with spiritual food. What I did this last week was I took a photo of every meal I ate between last Sunday and this Sunday. Now, I did take a little mini vacation with my wife and daughter to Dallas, and so that threw off the menu a little bit. It was a little more special than your average week. But I want you to notice something about this, okay? Um, that happened. A bag of popcorn was an actual meal one day last week. And then I, I realized I eat a lot of stuff in bowls. I eat a lot of <laughs> round things, soup especially, a lot of soup in my diet. But the, the reason I shot this picture is because it's always a delight when you sit down to a meal that is visually pleasing, smells good, is great atmosphere, and, and somebody has prepared it with love and skill. And it's a memorable meal, the kind you actually take a picture of, not for a sermon slide, but because you want to remember that food long after it's been turned into something else. But I also want you to notice something else about this picture. Some of the meals are amazing, but many of them are just very pedestrian and forgettable. I won't journal or write poems about the Pillsbury biscuit I ate last Sunday for breakfast. It's an okay biscuit, but I wasn't eating it going, Jesus, thank you for the pleasure and goodness of this Pillsbury confection that you it was just, I, I, I was running out the door. I saw a big pile of biscuits. I grabbed one, and I chowed it before I even had my shoes on. Swallowed, forgot it. I remembered it long enough to take a picture of it, and that was it. And if it weren't for that photo, it would be forgotten and flowing through the sewage of the northwest suburbs. Last week, I was about to faint after three games of basketball and almost no sleep and no food, and Jen Cho donated some chicken McNuggets and fries, which were actually meant for children, but I stole it from them. And I literally crawled to it on the floor of the gym and ate it half laying down. The point is, sometimes a meal is memorable, and it's more than just nourishment. But most of the time, we don't eat for pleasure. We eat because if we don't eat, we have no fuel. It doesn't have to be something you write home about, but it is such a necessary part of how we function and thrive in any setting, whether it's the physical or the spiritual. And listen, I love when I sit down at Scripture and my heart is truly moved. And there have been times, you know, not many, but there have been times where I've sat down to the Bible by myself and wept openly at what I was reading. I wish those times were more often. They feel sweet to me like God is real and he's in the physical space with me. And the word is more than just words. It's like something sung to my spirit. I would love it if that were my everyday experience. But the the reality, the honest truth is it's not. Many days I, you know, 
maybe, maybe more than some of you, like this is my professional source of content. I've read this book so much. I, mean, I just read it and read it and read it for like 34 years. I've been reading the same book. Some of us can't even watch the same TV show twice. I've been digging into the same book for 34 years. And the truth is, some days I read and go, I know. I read it like 120 times already. I know this is what it is. But I read it anyway. And the amazing thing is, each time I do, my heart may not leap in joy and notice delight, but my soul is nourished. It's important for me to reestablish the truths upon which my faith and my relationship with God are built. Those meals are for nourishment, not necessarily for pleasure. Now, I don't want to say I, it's a drudgery, but even when it is, it's a necessary drudgery because God intends to fuel our spiritual lives through spiritual food. Sometimes we make a mistake and we try to gorge ourselves on natural food in order to make up for something happening in our spiritual realm. There's a spiritual hunger, a spiritual malaise that we are aware of, and we misinterpreted it as, I'm lonely, I'm bored, I'm depressed. And so in the natural, we try to gorge ourselves on luxuries or pleasures, new experiences, distractions, thinking if I just go on this trip, if I just buy this thing, if I do this experience, if I learn this new hobby, I'm going to feel better. And we do those things, and we don't feel that much better. And that's because spiritual hunger cannot be satisfied with natural food any more than natural hunger is satisfied by spiritual food. What we are experiencing in the spiritual has to be fueled by spiritual food. There are no alternatives. There is no other way around this. And if we are not availing ourselves of spiritual food, what we will begin to experience is spiritual malnutrition. Many of those meals I ate were just fuel for this physical body. But without it, I would be in very bad shape today. I wonder if we need to learn to approach spiritual food with very much the same attitude. You know, because it's true that sometimes you will battle sleepiness as you sit down at the Bible. Sometimes you will battle a little bit of confusion. What on earth does this mean? Sometimes you'll battle an inability or unwillingness to accept what you're reading. If this is the God I worship, I don't know if I could accept that. There are struggles with eating. There are days when my wife heats up leftovers, and she, you know, I'm not a big fan of leftovers. I, I'll eat them. I'm not a snob, but I don't get excited about them. Some days, I choke down a reheated version of a meal I hated the first time around. I didn't enjoy it when it was fresh, and now I get to enjoy it warmed over. But as I'm choking it down as a necessary thing, this body nonetheless receives the benefit of that fuel. And I think it's important that when we approach the Word of God, we understand how desperately our spirits need spiritual nourishment. Early on in Jesus' ministry... God led Jesus into the wilderness for a period of reflection and isolation and for 40 days of fasting and prayer. And during those 40 days, God was preparing him for the trials of ministry that would come for those three incredible years 
And after he was done with that 40-day period, Satan came to him and began to attack him. And his first salvo right off the, of the gates was he attacked him at the level of his identity and he attacked him at the level of his felt natural need. I don't know about you, but after 40 days, anything related to food would get my attention. And he comes up to me and says, if you are the son of God, I mean, 40 days of reflection, prayer, isolation will really anchor you in what you believe you are, who you think you are. So he comes out of a time of establishing his identity and Satan pokes him right there and goes, if you are the son of God, I know you're hungry. Tell these stones to become bread. And the amazing thing is Jesus could have done it. If I had that kind of power, I couldn't, let, I couldn't fast for 40 days. I would just see boulders of bread everywhere. <laughs> like, oh, you know, he made it. And here, listen to how he responds to this. He says, he quotes the words of Moses, the words we just read. Man shall not live on bread alone. He's saying, right now, the crisis and struggle I'm embroiled in with you is not in the natural. Yes, my stomach is growling. But the real fight I'm engaged in is not with my stomach. It is against my adversary. And he's trying to unwind what God has done in terms of my identity. And I won't focus on bread when my very soul is in turmoil. I won't try to medicate the felt need in the natural self because right now the great struggle I'm embroiled in is in the spiritual realm. I think following Jesus is not a set it and forget it proposition. Every day, we have an adversary who wants to undo the work God is doing. He, we, all, we can always recognize and locate his work because wherever the enemy of God is at work, despair is seen. Rage is seen. Hopelessness is seen. Division is seen. Conflict is seen. God doesn't do those things. That's not the mark of his work. Wherever the enemy is working and he's gaining ground, you see those things which you all come to recognize as problems, trouble. Every day an adversary seeks to undo the work of God that is shaping us and growing us and strengthening us. And what he says is if you want energy to fight that battle, You've got to have nourishment in order to stand. Now, let's take it one step further before I run out of time. In the very beginning of John's gospel, he tells us something really profound. He uses an interesting word to describe Jesus. He says, in the beginning, the word, the word. I think it's a really weird way to refer to Jesus, but John alone does it. He says, in the very beginning, Jesus, the word was with God and he was God. And then, mysteriously, that word turned into a human being. Jesus Christ is the word of God in human form. It's a profound truth. Because we've just learned some important things about the need for spiritual nourishment. We need scripture in order to fuel us in the spiritual. Because nothing in the natural will take care of that need. But Jesus now is identified as the word of God made flesh. So that in the same way that scripture nourishes our soul, John is telling us that Jesus himself will play that role in our lives. Jesus himself, not just ideas about him, truths about him, but Jesus himself will now come to play that role. 
Jesus picks up on that later in the Gospel of John, chapter 6. He says it, leaves no, no confusion about it. He says, I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, yet they died anyway. But here is the bread that comes down from heaven, which anyone may eat and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. Whoever eats this bread will live forever. This bread is my flesh, which I will give for the life of the world. What does it mean? I know what it is to eat the scriptures. It means to read, to reflect, to process, and then to respond to it. I can figure that out. I don't actually sit there with my Bible. You know, I'm not trying to eat the book. I get how to eat God's word as text. But how do I eat God's word as a man? How do I do that? Here's what I believe Jesus is saying to us. That the way scripture enters the depths of us and creates fuel for the soul, so also the presence, the power, the love, the authority of Jesus as savior, as king, as protector, that real presence of Jesus, not Jesus as idea, but Jesus as person, active, engaged in my life. Jesus as king, whose authority I recognize that has power to rule over my conduct. Jesus as savior in whom I've placed all my confidence. Jesus as friend in whom I confide daily. Jesus as guide and shepherd whom I follow and turn to. As Jesus becomes more and more real and present and powerful in my day-to-day life, He plays that same energizing, nourishing role that Scripture does. In fact, the very point of Scripture is to point me to Jesus, the person. There is very little value in learning the book and missing the person. I'm so encouraged by how many of us have committed to reading the Bible in 2018. At last count, 62 of us have signed up on that sheet to say, We want to take God's word seriously this year. That's awesome. I want to tell you there are two ways to read the Bible. You could read it in pursuit of principles, and you could read it in pursuit of a person. If you read it in pursuit of principles, you're going to learn a lot, and each thing you learn is going to move you momentarily and then weigh you down permanently. If you're in pursuit of principles, the Bible is filled with them. And if you try to memorize and apply all of them, you will feel wrung out like a towel. But if you read the Bible in pursuit of a person, something powerful happens in us. Rather than memorizing rules and standards and requirements, we begin to grasp hold of a person whose heart drives those rules. Rather than saying, what was I supposed to do again? We begin to understand, this is what my God is like. I see him. I know and understand him. And little by little, my desire to become like him is growing and growing. The greatest gift of scripture is not to give us a thousand principles, but to reveal to us the person of God in Jesus Christ. So I encourage you this year as you open scripture, don't just be looking for nuggets of wisdom, little memorable quotes or rules to live by. Look for the person of God in Jesus Christ. I don't know if you remember a movie back in 1986. It was a classic 
film called Back to School starring Rodney Dangerfield. Terrible movie, stupid. Don't watch it. I'll just save you the time. He's a millionaire businessman who decides to go back to college. But because he's been out of school for like a thousand years and he's got millions of dollars, he decides to cheat a little. And when the English professor assigns him a paper on Vonnegut, he hires none less than Kurt Vonnegut himself to write the paper. That's pretty convenient, right? So Kurt Vonnegut writes the paper for him on Vonnegut, turns it in, he gets a failing grade. The professor gives it back to him. He says, why'd you fail me? She says, well, first of all, it's clear you did not write this paper. But second of all, whoever that someone is clearly doesn't know the first thing about Vonnegut. I love how an expert on Vonnegut tells Vonnegut himself he doesn't know who he is. See, what that that illustration always reminds me of is that it's possible to become an expert and be totally clueless. It's possible to be an expert and be totally, totally clueless. In fact, the, person with, the people with whom Jesus had the sharpest conflicts while he was on earth were not the people who were living horrible, immoral lives. The people who had the sharpest conflict were those who represented the religious leadership, the establishment. And his problem with them was they knew everything about God, but they did not know God. They were experts in the book of God and completely clueless about the person of God. And what he said was that expertise has no value. Not just a little value, no value, because the reason for all the principles is to reveal the person. It's to reveal the person. The great quest of the Christian life is not to become a perfect person. It is to know and have a relationship with the perfect person. When you read scripture, what is the benefit you draw? What are you looking for and what are you walking away with each time? When I was a new Christian, I had journals filled with things I wanted to remember. But when you look back at some of those things, it's all ideas. And as I look over some of those early writings of mine, what I realize is it's so easy to miss God himself while reading his book. It's so easy to miss God himself while reading his book. I want to give you this message this morning as an encouragement to you as you set out this year to read the word of God. Look for the person of God every time you read. Let the fruit of Bible reading this year not be just grunting your way through the book, but beholding the beauty, the personality of who God is. It's amazing to be able to, to, to talk to another person and say, can I tell you what my God is like? Can I tell you what my God is like? I don't want to just tell you what he expects of me, but why that matters to him. I don't want to just tell you what he did in history, but why he acts that way with us. I know him. I don't just know about him. You know, our short series to kick off the year, is called launch. The space shuttle, when it was fully loaded before takeoff, weighed in at around four and a half million pounds. I don't know, the, 
I mean, just the audacity of these engineers to go, hey, let's see if we can take something four and a half million pounds and throw it into space. And they did it, those crazy guys. I can't even fathom four and a half million pounds escaping the pull of gravity. But I know that the majority of the weight of those four and a half million pounds was fuel. That's an interesting thing. It's really heavy, but that's because you need a lot of fuel to lift something that heavy. (laughs) That that little riddle is going to make my head explode. It takes about 10 pounds of fuel to lift one pound of mass into orbit. What that reminds me of is that to get anything to move when something is pulling it down takes an extraordinary amount of power. See, we we think somehow um, living righteously in an unrighteous world is just going to be an easy thing. Having hope in a hopeless world is just a matter of attitude change. Trying to love in a hate-filled world is somehow going to be not that hard. Do you realize how strong the pull of everything dark is on us? If I read the news, I have to struggle to find hope today. I don't know about you guys, but every day I'm like, oh my gosh. I mean, did you see that plane in Turkey sitting on the edge of a cliff because it ran off the runway? Did you see the news about everyone in Hawaii thinking they were going to be nuked? I mean, every day something happens. You think it's easy to live a Godward life in a godless world? It's like four and a half million pounds sitting there on a platform. And we're thinking somehow we got to get this into outer space. We are not going to move forward in the spiritual life without an extraordinary amount of spiritual fuel. A sermon spoken in your hearing once every seven days, no matter how powerfully and skillfully and beautifully it's presented. World class without peer. Yeah, thank you. At least one person. Thank you. Thank you. You fed my ego. But even that, even if you had someone a thousand times better preach to you once, that one meal every seven days is not going to be sufficient to the fuel you need to move forward against the gravitational pull of this dark world. These battles we're fighting in our heart, they're not going to be accomplished the verse here and a verse there. We have to eat spiritual food. We need the word of God every day, every word of what he says. And we need the living word, the word become flesh, Jesus Christ himself, a person Real. His love, his power, his presence, his authority washing over us, filling us until Jesus himself becomes that fuel that drives our spiritual lives. And we don't need just a little of him. We don't need just a little of his word. We need a lot of it because the weight we're trying to pull out of orbit is huge. And a little will not do. The word of God is different than all other words. Because it comes from God, its power, its lifting force is much greater. It's the only source of power sufficient to the task of living in this world. Maybe you find that today you hear what I'm saying, 
but you're experiencing a loss, a, a, a loss of appetite for the word of God. I've got to wrap up here, so I'll just finish with this. Physicians will tell you that a, a sudden loss of appetite is an early sign of disease. That it's normal for living humans to feel hungry, and when you don't, something is really wrong. I don't know what happened in your life to lead to a loss of appetite for God's word and for God's word in the flesh. But at some point, that happens to a lot of us. We open the Bible and feel dead in our hearts. We turn to Jesus and feel no pull towards him. That's not okay. It's not normal. It's not good. It's a sign of spiritual illness. Something is wrong. And we wonder, what do I do about that? How do you make yourself hungry when hunger was never a force of the will? It was just a natural occurrence. And when it disappears, how do you get it back? Real hunger, I mean. Not the discipline of eating, but real hunger. How do you get it back? I don't have all the answers. I know where the starting point has to be. It has to be at the cross of Jesus Christ. It has to be. Because when I lose my appetite for God, it's often because I can't see him. I look around my life and say, where are you? If you're so alive and real, how come you never show up in my life? You feel so impossibly far and invisible and silent. Show up, be here. And I believe that in history, the one thing that will always stand as the ultimate demonstration of God's desire to show himself to us, his great love for us, is the cross of Jesus Christ. What possible greater act could there be from God to us than what Jesus did for us on the cross? The day that becomes not enough, we are truly lost because what more could God do? If he healed your marriage, if he healed your disease, if he saved your career, if he changed the economy, if he switched the president, whatever else it is you're obsessing over. If he did that, could it possibly reveal himself more clearly or powerfully to us than Jesus hanging on a cross, bound there, held up because he loved us? I mean, the place to start in any desire to reconnect to God is not show up in my life now, but start where he showed up for all of us. Start at that place where you realize he was more than an idea. He was God himself, my God, my Savior. Go back to that place. Dwell there. I can't think of any other place to start if you've experienced a loss of appetite for God and his word. I want to invite us to just bow for a second as the, uh, as the band comes up. <clears throat> hmm. I don't know where you are with respect to the word of God and the person of Jesus, but I can sense that a lot of us, there's a hunger that's rising, and that's a good thing. This year, as you commit yourself to grasp after God, to really take his word and eat it. Thanks for listening to the sermon from Harvest Community Church. If you would like more information or have any questions or comments, check out our website at harvest-community.org. Thanks for listening.